This is Father Michael Dank from theprodigalfather.org, and I'm really excited to be here with Monsignor Bible. Monsignor Bible is someone that I came to know through a brother seminarian who is now a priest, and Monsignor is someone that I've always uh, enjoyed his deep spiritual life, his love for sharing that with others. He's been a spiritual director to many over his years as a priest, and he's kind of like a good wisdom figure of the Diocese of Erie. So <laughs> he's not only that, but uh, but just become a, a dear friend and, and, and a priest that I admire. So, Monsignor, it's great to be with you today. Michael, it's great to be with you. I, 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 the friendship the four of you have had with me, I've been at times sometimes thinking I'm a mentor, other times I'm a mascot, but I, I love it all. So. Well, I'm glad to interview you today, and today we're doing the segment Praying with Priests, uh-huh. and really, I think as priests, we are given wonderful opportunities to grow in our prayer life and to pray, and not everyone has the same opportunities that we have in terms of that, so You're that's right. what I've been doing is interviewing priests, and first of all, asking them about their own prayer experience growing up from the time they were a child, how they learned to pray, and now how they're praying, maybe how you're praying even in retirement, and and we'll end the interview with any advice you might have for people that want to grow in their prayer life. So Amen. let's just begin, Monsignor, with your first memory of prayer. What is the first time you ever remember praying? I don't, it's, it, I have to really think about that. I, I went to Catholic grade school where formal prayer and uh, many times during the course of a day and the morning offering and this conscious offering of your day and, and it's little as we were in fourth grade I just didn't um, I never was that without a time when we weren't at prayer somehow mm-hmm. daily mass and uh, a, a, you know really fine religious education with the sisters of St. Joseph so I, I can't say it it was probably just elementary school prayer um, I know we prayed the family rosary when that was a, a thing you know, it was uh, broadcast every night, and my mother and my brother, who's much younger at that point than I, and uh, my dad would pray the rosary quietly. How old were you then? Well, I was probably eight or nine. Eight or nine. So yeah. when you say broadcast, what does that and mean? It, was it on TV, radio? It was radio. It there, was was no radio. T- there was no TV. There was no TV then? No, it was radio. It was broadcast. Um, Father Peyton had a rosary crusade that the family that prays together stays together. And um, then when I was in college, I remember there was a rosary broadcast that came from the seminary, and I was one of the DJs for the uh, broadcast. And uh, the seminarians prayed the rosary, but we did all of the engineering stuff in the uh, bring it on and pick it off the air and things like that. Well, let's talk about that scene. I want you to paint a picture for, for our right. listeners because we're, we're celebrating the importance of family so that the Holy Father and the Holy See has just released the new papal uh, bowl on the, on the family. So paint a picture of that scene of your family. What, what room were you at in your house? What was it like? What was the radio like? Where were you sitting? What were you doing? How did that look like and feel like? Well, at that point, you know, we had one radio. It was a big console type radio and we would gather just pull up a chair and sit around and uh, and it wasn't and it wasn't anything more than 15 or 20 minutes a night but we were different from other families in a Jewish neighborhood that they say where are you going so we've got to pray time to pray <laughs> and when and, you did that what did you feel like did you feel like it was a burden did you not like was it boring was it 
uh, I don't think beautiful. it was boring. Was it? I, I, I won't say that it was, I, I, did, I didn't glow mm -hmm. from it, you know, mm -hmm. but it was sincere to be able to pray with your parents, mm -hmm. you know. And then when uh, I was about 11 or 12, my dad got very sick and eventually was not at home. He was in an institution. And so we, we prayed for him. And uh, I think that affected a lot of depth in me. There was a program from CVL in Toronto. I, on Sunday mornings, I would go to an early mass and then sort of babysit my brother and my little sister. And um, mom would leave on a Greyhound bus to go to be with my dad. And it was an emptiness in the house, but then it would soon be replaced by an uncle and an aunt and their kids who would come every Sunday bringing mm -hmm. dinner. And we spent the Sunday with them, mm -hmm. you know. But I had about a 45 minute to an hour spot. And there was a, a classical music program, devotional classical music from CVL in Toronto. And I had a small little radio. And I would remember kneeling by the side of my bed and listening to the Adagio for strings and uh, some of the other music and, and how much I wanted to pray. And it wasn't the, the usual, it wasn't the grade school prayer. It hmm. was just quiet prayer. Mm -hmm. And the, the music really moved me. And uh, I think I can't tell you the name of the program now. It was way back then. That's 60, 70 years ago. But it was, I remember kneeling by the side of my bed and the place was quiet. And, uh, and you were how old then? Twelve. Around twelve years yeah, old. Yeah, twelve, something like that. So that was there was there was some emptiness because your father was. Yeah, there was a kind of an emptiness, but there was a quiet too. And uh, my, I was heading towards high school, and um, my brother and sister would be somebody lift to give them a lift, and they'd go to the kids' mass at nine thirty or whatever it was, uh -huh. and so. Uh, and I then I sometimes would go to mass later. Or earlier, so yeah, it was a it was a different. It, there wasn't any. It was not the kind of thing I ever shared with anybody, mm -hmm. you know. It was never shared prayer in any sense like that. It was just not something we did. Mm -hmm. Amen. But it's beautiful knowing you and your love for for music, and uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, but that's very interesting for me to hear now that that was a very Formative mm -hmm. time it was. for you. It was a meditative time, quiet yeah. time, and uh, there was a distinctive. You know, it was the distinctive thing to happen on Sunday. Mm -hmm. It was the Lord's Day, and I was there, very conscious of this is a very different day. It's a special day. And the pious music. What was what was that? It wasn't. The, it wasn't the big stuff. It was quiet. I. And I don't honestly recall what the content, the verbal content of the program was, mm -hmm. whether it was scripture or it was poetry and, and quiet. Okay. Yeah. It, but it was meditative. I know that. Yeah. That's where uh -huh. it stayed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Never thought of that in years. So as you went into high school then, you went to, where did you go to high school? I went to cathedral prep to um, boys prep school. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, it was an interesting time. I remember having a sister of St. Joseph trying to teach us uh, meditation. Oh, really? In high yeah. school? Uh -huh. okay. We were sophomores, and she was trying to teach us um, quiet prayer and meditation. And you know, in those days, there were sort of like steps of 
meditation uh-huh. and setting a scene and putting yourself in the scene. Right. It wasn't a long thing. It was a, it was a Latin class, and she worked it into it. And very much a, a nun who was very conscious of the missions and the mission of the church, but also the poverty of people everywhere. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, th- th- those were good years. Did that type of prayer have any impact on you, or was it just kind of a passing thing? No, I think it was an impact thing. I think it really was. You know, and out of that Latin class, there was a boy who had played JV football, and uh, one morning he wasn't there. And we found out later in the morning that he had died from peritonitis. He had a burst appendix. And he was gone. So he was 15 and a half. We were 16 in that area. You know. And I remember going to his wake, which is the first wake I ever went to on my own. Mm-hmm. And the next morning was the funeral. And about 35 of us walked from the prep school across town to his parish church. And uh, it was a cold February day, the 24th of February, Feast of St. Matthias. And um, it was one of the most formative days of my life. I walked in, and uh, we didn't know quite where to sit. It was a strange church to us. and. I just remember moving into a pew where somebody was already kneeling. It looked like a, a young guy. I couldn't say he was any much older, probably about the same. And um, he he had he had a prayer book, but he was actually there was there was a Latin liturgy, and it was an old priest in black vestments. And uh, when the the family arrived, Joey's mother was hysterical, screaming. And um, throughout it, this fellow who was kneeling on my right had his eyes closed, and he was absolutely so calm. And then we went through the the Mass, and in those days, no one received communion except the priest at a a Requiem Mass. Hmm. He received for the departed, but no one in the communion, nobody in the congregation got up to go for communion. It just didn't happen. Very strange mm-hmm. world now. And I, I was just so moved by his poise and by his quiet and his recollection. And we walked back to school afterwards, and I said, I gotta know I gotta meet this kid. You know? I looked all through the yearbooks and through the, the rosters and faces and so forth. I could knew exactly what he looked like, but I could never find him. And we didn't know quite what that really was. Somebody said, perhaps it was your guardian angel. I remember leaving that whole experience of wanting to be able to pray like that kid. Really? Yeah. I can tell you, I've been, you know, was subbing more recently in that same parish church. I can tell you exactly the seat where he's at. Never saw him again. But whoever he was, was very... It was a profound influence on my desire to pray, big time. And uh, so I don't know where that came from. Maybe it was Joey's angel, maybe it was mine. Mm -hmm. But in the midst of the bedlam, Joey's mother screaming hysterically. She was a single mom. And the the calm and the depth of this guy was just utterly amazing. So that was a gift from God, and I was only 15. Okay. Yeah, 16. Amen. 
Yeah, so I think at, at that moment and in that very real experience, um, God was showing you how to pray, yeah. how, how to pray through something like that. Yeah, that's right. And there was some yearning and desire for you to have that. Yeah, really, there really was. In the, in the midst of all of the bedlam and confusion, there was still a direct line of, of quiet prayer between himself and God that, that, that nothing disturbed. Yeah. Almost reminds me of Jesus, you know, with the disciples when he went to pray with the Father yeah. and they, what that must have been like for them to, to look and see yeah. him praying. That's right. And yeah. they, they didn't get it, and maybe I didn't get it at the time. I do remember all those years afterwards trying to find him, and there was nobody to be found. Huh. So how did you begin praying after that? Or did that immediately well, was, have an effect? Or was yeah, it I really on? did. It yeah. was much more... Uh, in those days, too, liturgy was Latin, and uh, prayer books were in, and I remember having my daily bread, and some of those, they were just a buck a piece, you know, mm -hmm. they were little prayer books and things like that. But I remember then going to, uh, there was a uh, novena to Our Lady of Perpetual Help in the parish on Sunday nights at 7.30, and I, I got so I never missed that. I was the only teenager there. Mm. And I was never an acolyte. I was never a server. Just, so tell some of our listeners that might not know what that <laughs> experience is like, what a novena is. Yeah. What, what, were, what were you doing? Well, it was a continual novena. It was a, it, there were prayers every Sunday night to Our Lady of Perpetual Help, the Rosary and the Litany, and Benediction of the Blessed Sacrament. And, you know, in that era, in 1952, 3, 4, um, vernacular liturgy was not possible. Everything was in Latin. Mm -hmm. And only time you could use anything in English was uh, at Benediction, but not at Mass or Sung Mass. But I then, at the, at the time I was in that situation, I think we had 13 seminarians in the parish. It was amazing. I mean, they ran everywhere from senior theology, big guys, to little rooks like myself who were thinking about the priesthood. But we had 13. When I was ordained, there were 13 in the seminary. Mm -hmm. And so, the good experience of knowing those guys. Yeah, while well, you're... Mm-hmm. Really, really, really. How did the call foster in your own? Well, it was funny. I told the congregation yesterday was the feast of St. John the Baptist de La Salle. And I wanted to be a Christian brother. Mm-hmm. I don't think I wanted to be a priest. I wanted to be a brother. I wanted to live in community, and I wanted to teach kids. That was what I really wanted most. And so I sent a letter to the vocation office for the the, the brothers Never got an answer. Mm -hmm. And then when I was finally a senior, one of the <laughs> one of the assistant headmasters at the school, whose place I would take in later life three times, said, he said, why don't you just go to the seminary? Hmm. Bingo. That was it. And on they went. I walked home and I said to my mother, you know. So when he said that to you, how did you feel? I, I so just that needed would somebody the... to throw me off the cliff a little bit. You uh -huh. know? And I thought, well, the brothers aren't coming through. Let's give it a shot. But there were 23 from my graduating high school class that went in the seminary. Yeah. 23. And uh, I went home and I said to my mom, I said, I think I'm going to St. Mark's in the fall. And she said, I thought so. Mm. That was the vocation. Mm -hmm. 
discussion. It was all there. And there she was with, you know, a single mom taking care of two kids. I was three. And um, she was delighted. And I think my dad's uh, personal suffering, he had uh, <clears throat> and multiple nervous breakdowns. Mm -hmm. But I think his being out of the family circle, in care, and away from home, I think I think I had no idea how much suffering he endured. Thinking, here's a prof I'm, I have a profession. I'm a lawyer. I have uh, a career. I've got a wife. I've got kids, and here I am sitting in the mental institution. Mm. You know, I think he earned my, a lot of my vocation. Really, I really do. But um, later on, when I was in summer school. I ran into a Christian brother and I said, I almost became one of you guys. And he, I told him the story. He said, what was the year? I said, 1954. He said, holy cow. He said, I was in charge of vocations for the province at that time. He really? said, I missed it. I said, sorry, bud, you, <laughs> wow. you missed your chance. Yeah. So you went into, you went to, uh, to the seminary right after high school? Right after high school. Yeah. So you went in with uh, how many other guys? You said 29? 23, yeah. 23 from mm -hmm. high school, right into the seminary. So yeah, right into the college seminary. Yeah. And that was what year? That was 1954, September 54. Okay. And so talk about your shift then from your shift in prayer from a high school student into college, into, into a seminary. Was, what was that like to pray in a seminary? Was it different? Was it formative? Was it worthwhile? Was it... It really wasn't terribly exciting. You know, there were morning prayers before Mass and uh, evening prayers, the rosary, which we broadcast every every night, and then night prayers. You broadcast that out? Out of the seminary. People? Yeah, without, without one of the local radio stations. Oh, nice. Uh, so other families then, could hear that? and Yeah, and then I was one of the announcers for bringing it on the air, taking it off the air. and uh, So, yeah, but... Um, you know, we had the usual teachers who tried to teach us more depth of prayer. Okay. Yeah. And then, but um, we were brushed pretty creatures of our time. And even in the seminary, there was what we would know now as um, Ignatian prayer or even mental prayer and so many things like that. It was, it was very undefined. Mm -hmm. Very undefined. But I was uh, I went to a seminary run by the OFMs at Christ the King and I loved it. I loved that place. I was there two years. And they moved some of us then to Catholic University for for uh working on a graduate degree as well as studying theology. So I had like a double major. Mm -hmm. And uh so things began to blossom there with the the Sulpicians that was a much Kind of a very rich form of life and prayer life, and uh, I was I was studying liturgical music at the time, so I graduated with a degree. I was ordained and graduated with a degree in chant, Renaissance, medieval music, organ, and uh, I think that was it, choral mm. con conducting. And two years after I graduated. The liturgy changed to English, and everybody was singing "Michael Row the Boat Ashore." And <laughs> yeah, all, and you all, all this wonderful, you know, thousands of years yeah. of musical tradition yeah. just went down the tubes. So, 
Well, when you think about that time of, of early seminary, were there any moments where you had, you know, um, what St. Ignatius would say, um, you know, um, where, where God just acted on you, where you had a, an experience of God that was of nothing you did but just experienced? Yeah, I think so, but I don't know, I can't put my finger on a lot of that right now. I One of my first ex- experiences of that was in, I was working... <laughs> I was in high school and I was working in a kosher delicatessen, of all things, and studying English and German and Yiddish. And um, the only way I could get to Mass on Saturday morning that would fit the, the schedule was to go to the Byzantine liturgy. Okay. And it, it awed me no end to know that the Eucharist could be celebrated in a form so different from what I was used to, mm-hmm. you know. And I've, I've had that privilege of celebrating in the Byzantine right now for over 50 years. It was really very formative. Um, it, and, and they're priests. My own parish priest never said, why don't you go in the seminary? Those guys said, hey, you'd be a priest. You could be oh, a priest. Oh, really? Yeah, they were the ones. Oh. And uh, so I felt very close to them all these years. And, uh, well, so... Uh, from what I remember, you are by ritual too, so you can yeah. celebrate both liturgies. Yeah. How has the Byzantine liturgy or Byzantine spirituality impacted your own prayer life? Well, there's a different tempo to the prayer. You know, in in some cases it's a re- it's a repetitive mm-hmm. prayer, but it allows you the freedom of getting away from other things, and you just get into the movement and the rhythm of the liturgy, the litanies. Mm-hmm. You know, and. Uh, so much so that when I was in the seminary, my roommate was a Byzantine seminarian for Pittsburgh. So I learned a lot from him, and we prayed a lot together. And, uh, what do you mean when you say that, you prayed a lot together? Well, I knew what he, I, he was teaching me, the liturgy, mm. mm-hmm. and uh, teaching me about the, the calendar, the saints, and so forth. So, Yeah, that was, that was another dimension. One of the, the most defining dimensions, though, was... Um, when we were at Christ the King Seminary, the OFMs ran this, and they were always rounding up guys to join the Third Order of St. Francis. You know. Well, there was a, a nucleus of about five seminarians at that point who were very much interested in the liturgy. Now, Franciscan liturgy in those days, we used to refer to seraphic confusion. It was just nuts, it was crazy. And we had learned monastic liturgy through Mount Savior Monastery. And the five of us became oblates at Mount Savior in Elmira. And we were safe then. The friars couldn't uh, recruit us because you couldn't belong to two religious communities at the same time. We mm-hmm. were already taken. Yeah. So tell our listeners what, what an oblate or a third order is. Well, the third order is a lay membership in associated with the, the prayer style good works traditions of a religious community. But um, the, the, the Oblates, you are, you are adopted into the community individually. Okay. You become their child, you know. And, uh, and is that a Benedictine? Yeah, these were, and Mount Savior was a contemplative Benedictine house mm-hmm. at Elmira, and they didn't run schools or parishes, and it was a very prayerful place. And I was only 19. 
and I became a member of that community, which has influenced me my, my whole life. Mm. In terms of the divine office, I was praying the office at age 20. Mm -hmm. What is the office for people that don't okay. know? It's a, well, it's a series of, of prayers designed to cover the, the entire day and also the entire week, and then in the broad sense, the seasons of the church year, and uh, so you have morning prayer, evening prayer, uh, all designed thematically around the light and darkness in the day mm -hmm. and the, um, the beauty of the seasons, the church seasons and so forth. But I remember praying that way and other older guys, seminarians, would say, why are you praying in the office? You don't have to. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I said, oh no, I do have to. This yeah. is me. And I think the, the uh, divine office has been extremely formative. I've been back to the monastery to spend time I think for 50 years, at least 50 years, and uh, just to be there with the, 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 the brothers and the quiet of the monastery and following the liturgy of the hours through the day, mm -hmm. you know, and um, yeah, it was a real thing. You become an individual member of the monastery, but who lives in the world, mm -hmm. and you share their life and their good works, and uh, a very, very rich thing, very rich thing. Yeah, yeah. I know that that's been a important part. I know you go there every year for retreat and I go, go back there to there every the, year. Yeah. yeah. So from 19 years old, I didn't realize that you've been an oblate. All that time. Yeah. Yeah. You're you're just a you're you're a, really a layman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you're part of the community. Yeah. So for our listeners, anyone can 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 do that. Can yeah. Take sure. part and and uh, in in any not any order, but a, a lot of orders. The monastic have orders. A, monastic. Yeah. yeah. Third so order or oblate. I'm kind of a monk who lived in town. Uh -huh. It was fun. Yeah. It was good. And I still am close to the wall. And so, but it led me into reading Don Marmion later years and some of the traditional monastic writers who were very, very scripturally based and uh, traditional, the living tradition of the church, you know. And uh, it was a very healthy diet, very healthy diet. Mm hmm. Amen. When do you think that you, well, talk about any moments that you that, that you had a felt, you know, as the saints would call it, a mystical experience. Um, were, have there any been any moments like that for you in your life where you felt united? Yeah, I think so. And they really were not seminary years. It was only, I think, in the year 2000. And this is 2016. Um <clears throat> My sister died the year before, and I was just, I was, I was um, in education, no, I was in parish work at that point, and I said to her, Rosie, get me something for 2000, for the millennial year, hmm. get me something, anything. So I had my first priest-deacon seminarian conference at Steubenville. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. and it was um, pretty, well, amazing. I was never exposed to charismatic prayer like that, you know, and the power of that. Mm -hmm. That place is, is big time, you know. And um, at the end of the last night we were there, Bishop Sam Jacobs, who was a personal friend of mine, took a moment and we priests sat on folding chairs, about 15 of us at a time. And Sammy came and prayed over us, put his hands on our heads, very reminiscent of the ordination gesture, mm. you know. And then with a, a kind of holy oil, not chrism or anything, he anointed mm -hmm. our hands. 
and he kissed our hands. Hmm. And I melted. I literally melted. Um, I couldn't wait to tell anybody or go somewhere, to, you know. And they prayed over me for the gifts of the Spirit. Nothing ever happened. Mm-hmm. And you know how, they, how it did happen with Joey Brancatello. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's another story. But, the, you know, the gifts that, that came out of that weekend, I couldn't begin to ascertain. I think my sister really, really came through. So that was her gift to you. Yeah, it was. Talk about that a little <laughs> bit more when you say you melted. What, what, what does that mean? I, I, was, I was very peaceful. I um, really almost wanted to cry. I didn't. But it was like being ordained again. It was just... Uh, and, and many of the other guys felt the same way. Because, you know, we who bless need to be blessed. Mm. So it was a, an experience of being blessed. Yeah, and we who pray for others need to be prayed over. Uh-huh. You know, and there were there were so many great moments like that in the following few days. Uh, and I remember it was a Pentecost weekend. I came up Route 7 in Ohio, or 11, one or the other, came up to Conneaut. And I stopped to see a priest friend of mine in Conneaut. And I said, Ray... I don't know what I really want to say, except that I want to pray for you. I want mm-hmm. to pray over you. Oh, yeah. He said, you coming from Steubenville? <laughs> <laughs> so the next morning was Pentecost, and I had uh, a 9.30 Mass at the cathedral. And during the readings, I realized that um, my homily notes were upstairs on my bed. And I said, well, I'll just do it. So I moved the microphone to the center of the sanctuary, and I just preached on the Spirit. And I thought, well, well, try it at the 11th. It might work again. And afterwards, a guy came up, and he said, what's different about you today? Mm-hmm. I said, I really don't know. He said, I could see through you. I thought, holy cow, there's something going on here. You know, really. Yeah. Um, but the, the gift of tongues didn't come for another year, year and a half. Mm. But the, the peacefulness and the um, desire to be in touch and in one with God was there. It was really true. It was like a whole, being, a whole new conversion moment. Mm-hmm. It was great. And it isn't over yet. No, and it seems like that, not seems like, but that was very much... No, you say you didn't receive any gifts. I think you received the gift of the I Holy think Spirit. So. Yeah. Yeah. The gift, or the gift of comfort and the, the gift of insight. And I remember after that reading, the, the words of the divine officer reading the scriptures and having words simply jump out at you. Uh-huh. You know, that uh-huh. you never, you've read this line many times before, but all of a sudden, now it makes sense. Mm. It was the gift of wisdom. It was an insight, you know? Yeah. Yeah. What a blessed I, I, I think that's true that when we're anointed and blessed by God, oftentimes the fruit bears, the fruit comes even later in our life and yeah, continues I think to come. So. Talk a little bit about that praying in tongues. I haven't talked to, uh, I did talk to one priest that talked a little bit about the charismatic. What, what, what do you mean when you say you got the gift a year or two later of praying in tongues? Well, I, as you know, Father Joe Brancatelli was the seminarian at that point. And he stopped to see me. I knew him as an engineering student at Cannon. 
He stopped to see me and to tell me he was planning to go to the seminary in the fall. And so we, we, we talked. And I know that every time I absolved Joey, he would go into tongues, mm. you know, sort of babble. Mm -hmm. And there was no sense to the words. It's just a, it, where the, uh, your, your soul is reaching out for God without the whole interference of your, your intellect mm. and the concepts of, of things. And um, so we went to the gym, we worked out, we had supper, we came back and prayed in front of the Blessed Sacrament. And at a point, Joey simply got up and came over and put his hands in my head, and it happened. And we both sat there and cried. Hmm. You know, it was, um, you know, I had all these high power, heavy duty charismatic priests praying over me. It never happened. This little monkey comes to town, and there, there we go, you <laughs> well, know. Well, so he was just going in the, yeah, that's right, because yeah. he, he met you at Gannon. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I knew him from Gannon. He used to come so, up. We heard confessions every day, and Joey would come up. For our listeners, Father Joe Brangatelli is a good friend of mine, and he's yeah. the reason I actually know Monsignor Bible. Yeah, we hooked through, up with Joey's Joey. first Mass. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. But, uh, you know, this, this of quiet prayer, you really don't need a lot of heavy-duty intellectual content to your prayer sometimes. Sometimes it's healthy. Just to let it flow. It just mm -hmm. simply flows out of you. Yeah. yeah it's, your, it's your heart, your emotions working overtime. Yep, it worked. How about from retreat? Any moments from any of your retreats over these last 50 years that stand out as being encouraged uh, with God? It, it can be. You know, it was interesting. I... I, when I would, would go on retreat, it was usually just a week. And as I drive up the road to the monastery from down in the valley, I always had the same prayer. I said, God, send me somebody who needs me. Mm. And send me somebody who can represent you to me. And over the years, it's been a marvelous experience of, of these priests. You know, um, I found soon that at the monastery there were only two priests, the rest were lay brothers, and so your choice of really making a good confession was was limited, mm -hmm. you know, and so. But I remember a priest from India who was there, and I, I we we were became fairly good friends in the few days we were there together, and I asked him to hear my confession, and uh, he did, and we prayed, and about. Half a day later, he asked me to hear his. And he had been challenged so heavily in chastity. Mm -hmm. And he, he just simply cried. He sobbed. And it was one of the most um, rewarding moments of the sacrament of penance that I ever had mm -hmm. with anybody, you know. We're still in touch. We're still in touch. Yeah. I could never spell his last name. It's about forty letters, and <laughs> but we we remember what happened. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I think well, not I think, but I know that the sacraments are supposed to help us encounter God mm -hmm. very personally. When you think about your relationship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, how has that relationship evolved over the years and become a a personal relationship rather than just a um... I love the idea I have always loved the idea as God as Father life giver 
uh, source of life, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, I know that when we went through the rather touchy years of inclusive language in the 70s and 80s, when <clears throat> the religious women who were so sensitive to those issues, and sometimes rightly so, were talking about Creator God and mm-hmm. so forth, but never would say the word Father. Mm. And the word, that whole concept of the fatherhood of God was so rich and so profound, I really allowed it to really happen to me. Mm-hmm. And while I love Jesus and, the, the, and, you know, in later years, focused on, on the Spirit, <clears throat> this whole fatherhood of God in the sense of he gives birth, he, he gives life to Jesus and to the Spirit. It's the source. It's the entity that is unbelievable in richness. And uh, it's a different uh, different world to be in. But I, I have loved it. I've loved it. And that's why even now the formula for uh, <clears throat> absolution, God the Father of mercy. Mm. We've been saying mm. that for 20 years, at least, in the, in the prayer of absolution. Okay, yeah. God the Father of mercy. Yeah. And it's all right there. The, you that know, this whole thing on me. divine mercy is nothing yeah. new. Mm-hmm. It's, all been, it's all been there this whole time. One of the things I learned from my prayer experience and from monastic prayer <coughs> is not to rush anything. Hmm. I can't believe the way that some people can run through the rosary <coughs> or run through um, even the, the liturgy, the hours, or mass. You know, you, you can't do it. Mm-hmm. You can't. I always remember... I was just a young priest, and in those days we were supposed to be reminding ourselves that the liturgy of the hours, the divine office, the prayers we pray every day, was choral prayer. And you were supposed to move your lips. Okay. As you pray the Latin prayers, you were to move your lips and form the words, even though you made no sound. Mm-hmm. And we more or less did that. We didn't do it always. I mean, you could sometimes just scan down a psalm and, and get the meaning of it, but... But I remember going to a rectory, and this old Irish priest had the football game on, and he was moving his jaw, and I don't think he had any idea what he was saying. And it was it, it was almost ludicrous. He had one eye on the game, one eye on the book, and the jaw was moving like crazy. And I thought, well, I don't know what's going on here, but this is different. This is not the way we do it, I don't think. Never could say, what are you doing, old man, you know? There were there were good moments, good moments. Now I know music has been very influential on you, and yeah. one of the I remember the one of the first times I visited you in Erie when you were at the cathedral, you had a wonderful uh, piano and an organ, and yeah. to watch, to listen to you play, uh, was for me a wonderful experience. How has music impacted your your prayer or your experience of God? Well, there's so much there. You know, there's such great literature of uh, worship music in the church. I've learned to love very much the Anglican tradition and the Byzantine tradition and some of them. And um, there's a wonderful program with heart and voice that comes out of Rochester in the morning on Sunday. We get it here at 6 a.m. And I'm up at 6 a.m. with my first cup of coffee 
sitting in this chair listening to this uh, wonderful Anglican chant and mm. the choral tradition, you know. And then the rest of the day will follow from there. But, um, yeah, I've written, I've, I've enjoyed writing music for the worship of the church, mm -hmm. simple things, you know, refrains, responsorial songs. And uh, sometimes music can move you like nothing else can. And there for a long time we were going through a desert where we had very little of any value, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Anybody could play three chords on a guitar was a church <laughs> musician, you know. They kept thinking, oh no, I don't think so. This is not Palestrina. This is not any of the others. But there's certain pieces of music I dearly love. I still, you know, I've got um, sometime when you got a good half hour there's a piece of music called The Road to Emmaus. Mm. And it's one of the rare settings of that particular piece. It's for solo, high voice and organ. Okay. And Louise and Sally sang it <clears throat> at Riverside Church in New York every Easter Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock mm. with that great organ and Virgil Fox playing. And uh, the, it, it, it's, a, it's very, very interesting. You, the, Jeremiah Weinberger, who wrote it, was Jewish. I don't know whether he ever became Christian or not. But it is the most profound musical experience I know. You need to take time, and you absolutely freeze everything else, and you just focus on the... It's extremely chromatic. It's almost impossible to play. But they do it with such ease that you would really... And it's so funny, you know, for many people, uh, Easter Sunday ends with dinner, and the Easter eggs are gone, the candy's all half-eaten, and so forth. The actual tradition of the Triduum includes Easter afternoon and Easter night. Mm -hmm. You know, It's um, Thursday to Friday night, Friday to Saturday, Saturday to Sunday night. And the whole experience of the, 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 the disciples at Emmaus is at the end of the Triduum. It's at the end of Easter Day, Sunday. And uh, this is the perfect way. Well, this thing caught on in New York, and for decades, they would flock to Riverside Church for this experience of having the afternoon sun coming through the windows and mm. Easter in the air and just sitting back and letting Louise tell this story. Yeah. Oh, my God. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure you get a recording. Sometime. I would love that. They're very rare. Recordings are rare. and uh, But it's wonderful. That's probably my most significant musical experience. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I love that section of St. Luke. Nothing like it. Well, now I'm, I'm with Monsignor here in, in the area. <laughs> We're in, running out in, of in time, aren't we? <laughs> and I want to talk a little bit about what your, how your life has shifted. So you retired. When did you retire? I retired when I was 77, which was about two years ago. Okay. Yeah. And how has your... So you always told me that you couldn't wait, not to retire, because you love being a priest, yeah. but uh, that you couldn't wait to be a hermit, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just to have the time yeah. to pray. Yeah. So what my, has that been like to be retired and to, to pray now? My, my first two years, or a year and a half after, before I got sick, I had a place on the lake in downtown in Erie, in the city. But I, I loved the fact I could uh, eat what I chose. I loved to cook. 
and I would take a daily mass in one of the parishes. But I had time to pray. Mm. I had time for music. Mm -hmm. I had time to do things that I never had before. But, I mean, God has still blessed me with a, a ministry of reconciliation, which I think is probably one of the most rewarding things I've ever done as a priest, is be there for people for yeah. reconciliation and uh, for confession. But I had the time, mm -hmm. and it was, it, was, it was a quiet place. I could sit on the, on the front porch at 2 in the morning and have not a sound go by, you know. And uh, Yeah, I, I really focused. I, 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 I'd said to myself, you know, you've never, ever had a chance to live alone. You had your family, you had your community, you had the school, you had all these other priests, people, and everything. This is the first time I ever had a chance to be alone. Yeah. And I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. When you say you love reconciliation, and I just want to talk a little bit about this because it's the year of mercy, tell us why you love it and what would you say to someone that doesn't understand it or maybe is afraid of it or doesn't get confession? Mm -hmm. What do you love about it? What I love about it is the, the, uh, the peacefulness of the experience, the awe of being able to enter into the world of a person's soul. Um, I was so blessed because when I was a college student and, and uh, whatever, the, the cathedral had a tradition of daily confessions from 4 until 5 and 7.30 to 8 in the morning. Well, when I was assigned there, I just fell into that. I was there almost every day uh -huh. when I was not away. You know, and just there and... Uh, People knew you were there, and sometimes they would just come in to talk, and then they'd been to realize that something deeper was hurting and needed healing. So, yeah, 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 it was there. So, I mean, I did that for 21 years, and it was such a beautiful part of my life. And I know in my own life, I always say to people, I love going to confession as a priest, and I love, yeah. I love hearing confessions as well, but I know in my own prayer life, when there is a blockage, when it feels like I, I'm not connected with God, mm -hmm. You know, oftentimes that if it is because of sin, it's not until I really go to confession and experience that reconciliation. That's right. That I can pray again and pray and, and feel that closeness with God. Yeah, yeah. So, it's really true. So if you're listening to this and it's been a while since you've been to confession, and you want that connection with God, maybe that is what He's calling you to right now. So, after all these years, you're a wisdom figure now. Yeah, but you're you're, you're, you're a sage. <laughs> Um, what, would your, what would your advice be to someone, to anyone, a layperson, anyone that has this desire to grow in prayer and they just don't know how? What would your advice be to them? Find a mentor, mm. you know, find a guide. Or in the absence of an individual guide, find a community mm. that prays. That's you wonderful know, advice. A parish community yeah. that prays. Or a religious house or a religious group. Um, and it's a matter sometimes not waiting for them to come to you. You have to find them. You search them out. And when you find a place, there was a, the Episcopal Cathedral here in Erie had the Taizé prayer on Sunday nights, you know, and it was, it was just nothing short of wonderful. Mm. You know, they're not doing it now, but mm -hmm. I was doing it for Sunday nights for years. And, uh, but there, there, you, you find these opportunities and you just immerse yourself and let go. And you don't have to lead the prayer. Sometimes a great blessing in leading prayer, too. But necessarily being led is, is beautiful, and it's good. 
Yeah, and I think that's a wonderful St. Teresa of Avila. One of her lines is, uh, "He who directs himself is a fool." Yeah, indeed. you know, we do yeah. really need a direction. We do need to find mentors and guides and communities. That's the whole. That's the whole point of, of God gift, gifting us with this church. And the spirit is there. The spirit is in the midst of that community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think of that often when I think of the situation of Thomas the Doubter, or as they say now, Thomas the Skeptic. He tried to figure it out all week for himself. It's only when he came into the midst of the community that he realized who Jesus really was. Yeah. The community had been praying for him all week, saying the goofy, I can't, can't get it right. But um, he found the Lord in the community where when he was all by himself, he just couldn't, just couldn't get there. So there's truth to that. Well, go ahead. Yeah. Well, Amen. Monsignor, or Bill, it's you know, been a wonderful time with you, and I'm so glad to know you and have, have this experience of hearing about your prayer life. It's, as, it, it's as like a, everybody else's. It's a hodgepodge. It's, it's a hodge. It's very different for everybody else, and it's amazing how God finds us and how God places people into our lives yeah, how true. To, to teach us how to pray. So thank you for spending this time with us. And I always ask the, the priest that I'm with if, if they can give our listeners a blessing. Amen. Loving Spirit of God, come down upon your church, and especially those who th- through this medium are in search of a deeper identity of you, the living and true God. And I ask God to send life, blessing, and peace to those who seek it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.